This episode is sponsored by Newbie Remote Conf. Newbie Remote Conf is a two-day completely virtual conference hosted by none other than Charles Max Wood. If travel expenses are an issue or you just can't afford to be away from home for two days, then join us. It's virtual. This conference is focused on people who are new to programming who want to learn what the pros know or just get a leg up in getting a job and getting into the programming community. We'll have speakers from all over the programming community to help you stay current in a Slack room where you can connect with speakers and other attendees in real time. We'll also have a live roundtable video chat for attendees and speakers, plus we'll provide the talk recordings to you within days of the conference. Early bird tickets are available for $150 until May 12th, and the call for proposals is open until April 28th. So come join us at NewbieRemoteConf.com. Hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 208 of the iFreak Show. Today on our panel, we have Guy Rambo. Hello from Brazil. We have Erica Sadun. Hello. And my name is James Zuber. And today, we don't have a guest, but we're going to talk a little bit about white labeling apps. And when you talk to people, you don't really know what they're talking about when you say, like, I'm working on a white labeled app. But this is an app that you build. Um, so you build it one time, but you skin different things for uh, different customers. So there are a lot of companies around that will build an app, but they've got 20, 30, 40 different versions of the app that they distribute on behalf of their customers um, to do it that way. Basically, what you're saying is you're building common infrastructure and turning that into a product, right? That's true. So, yes, that's a good way of putting it. And the common infrastructure is, you know, your view controllers may be mostly the same, a lot of the same behavior in your app, but say the color is different, the icon's different, maybe there's text different. Um, and this is real basic functionality can get a lot more complex. But, but the key to white label development is that you offer a service to various companies where those companies do not have to themselves invest in creating supporting technology. They do not have to invest in creating supporting infrastructure. Instead, what you're doing is you're marketing components that are already pre-built, ready to put together to create that private brand for each company you're dealing with. Exactly. So you can leverage one app that you've built and, and reuse it for a different and let other people use it and they've got their own app and that helps them out with whatever they're trying to do. I think some common examples are, say, a realtor might have their own app. Uh, a mortgage person might have their own app. So if you're going through, trying to get a loan for your house, your mortgage broker may may have an app that's branded looks like their their company or their sales personally and they can walk through that process and there's a number of companies that do that i've worked with companies that do like remote check deposit so you handle all the check stuff which financial things are hard to do so some small credit federal you know federal credit union of green bay wisconsin may not want to develop their own app but they can use you know, this other company's app and it looks like theirs and as far as their their users, their customers know, it does. Let's stop and just kind of step back a second because this kind of notion of pre-built components has been in the development arena and specifically in Apple's ecosystem for a very long time. When the App Store first started, you could buy custom widgets, custom controls, custom art. What sets apart this kind of higher level development from those basic things that people originally were using to, to bring into their apps? So what are some examples of the widgets? Because I've never, I've never used them. Oh, you could do everything from buying um, specialty sliders and knobs and um, transition effects all the way up to buying, and this goes cross-platform, models that you can just throw into your games. The yeah, notion of today, reusable components is pretty widespread. 
Today, the best example of this would be something like PSPDF kit, where you can buy a full PDF engine for your app. It's kind of like that. Mm -hmm. Sure. So a, a major difference is, you know, we're talking about with the, the widgets, those are smaller little components that you bring into an app yourself. So you'll take one component, maybe a bunch of different components and build up your PDF game. I don't know if there exists a PDF game, but that would you could do it that way. I don't think I've ever heard of a PDF game, but I know what you're talking about. All right. Business That'd idea. Cool. Free, free business idea it. for our listeners. Um, with white labeling, you're providing an entire solution. So a you full might, stack, a full, right? Well, a full stack, a full full app, and possibly an app, a backend. Um, but today we're talking about just the apps. So you know your customers does not are not necessarily mix and match, mixing and matching things, but they're getting a full solution that just works and it looks like they did it themselves. But you're also selling customization, right? Possibly. Most of the companies have a very limited ability to customize. So you can start off with things like, you know, change the name of the app. You can change the icon. You can change the color scheme. You can change some text. Um, that's the basic thing that most companies do. And you, you can get more complicated. But, you know, typically, you know, you, you figure out a problem set that someone's facing, like a realtor, and you just solve the problems that they're going to deal with and you just crank them out a new app um, as soon as you can as easily as you can but now a lot of people when they think about this kind of area of development they think about things like storefronts because storefronts and shopping carts and so forth have been so ubiquitous in the reusable component field but it's not limited to that is it so I'm not sure what you're getting at. Can you? For example, this same kind of white label development can go to banks. It can go to um, administrative services. It can go to delivery systems, right? It could be. It depends on the application. Most of the, I think the companies that are, building white-labeled apps, at least what I'm talking about, um, focus on a specific industry. And there's a whole whole another field of white-labeled apps. And if you search for like white-label on Google, you'll get these little app builders where you can mix and match a bunch of components. And it spits you out an app. And I'm not sure exactly how it works, if it's cross-platform or, or what technologies it uses, but... There's things that you can do where I'm just a random person. I want to design my app, and they, they call that white, white labeling. Um, but for my, what I'm talking about, the problems that I'm, I'm talking about today, it's you're generally targeting a specific industry, you know, a very narrow subset of what the users will be, and providing a customized app. So it looks like your customer has their own app that they, they built out of their, out of their own budget. So what industries are broad enough that you can sell the same kind of app over and over and over, but where it's small enough, where individual identity really plays a huge role? That's a good question. So I'm finding that the companies that do this, um, one of them is education. So there are apps for, let's say, a school district, and the school district has their own app. But, you know, they have a lot of the same things. They've got classes, they've got teachers, they've got after-school activities, they've got announcements, things they want to do push notifications for. So there's a company out there that builds a school district app. So every school district in probably in the world could use this app and use it to uh, notify their, their parents and students about things. As someone who regularly gets robocalled from my school district, I'm just sort of rolling my eyes at that one. Definitely a possibility. Um, you might get too many notifications, but something you turn off and adjust is probably better than a robocall. Mm -hmm. Because who answers the phone, really? But you mentioned education. 
what about some other areas which you know are suitable for for white label kind of development yeah the industries that have companies that do this are things where you know a, a person or a group or a company might need an app for their users and but still want to have their own branding behind it i think realtors are a good thing so they can walk their prospective home buyers through uh, the process of buying a home but they've got the app that looks like them so that keeps them top of mind i've run across some mortgage apps that help people you know get their mortgage process done and you know this is paid for by the mortgage broker and it looks like it's got their branding on it their picture their their logo that stuff so there's a bunch and the more i dig into it the more industries i find that are actually doing apps like this uh, yeah I, oh, go ahead. I was recently i was recently uh, shopping for apartments and i found that almost every app that i found was really the same app so i see they're using this a lot here and even being curious as I am and a hacker, I started up a proxy server on my Mac and looked at the HTTP calls they were doing. And like all the apps that from different realtors were calling the same server. So they're actually all white label and just the, the icon and the colors are different, but the, the underlying things are the same. No, that's a good point. And I'm not sure how it works in brazil but in the u.s there's a you know there's less than a handful of these listings and they all kind of get the info from the same place and just redo it um but I want so to talk about how the, do you target an area because you obviously can't build you know one product that's going to service both banks and supermarkets true the companies that do this they, they pick one industry that they know the, the realtor app is not doing banking you know it's, it's not doing flight tracking so the company just built one app and it rebrands it but since we're a ios podcast i want to talk a little bit more about the the technical challenges of of building an app like this um so you got one version of your app maybe it's great maybe you're out there maybe you're selling it maybe it's in the app store like how do you get it to two three five 20, 50 different customers who might be using a very similar version, similarly branded app. Um, if you've dealt with certificates, provisioning profiles um, for even one app, this is, this is a pain. So scale that by 20 or 50 and you have a whole other set of problems. From my point of view, one of the biggest issues that I can imagine is going to be the ticketing process. As far as like bug tracking? Bug tracking, yeah. Uh, developers, we don't write bugs, right? Um, no, never. Not any developer I've ever met. That's right. But I hear other developers occasionally write bugs. But when you're supporting a white label app, Surely, that notion of customer ticketing, customer support, is going to have, with at least Apple's ecosystem, a necessity for building out both the people who deal with the customer who is engaging with the content of the app and the customer that's engaging with the functionality of the app. And how might that work through, say, an iOS app? That's a good point. Um, from one perspective, you want to do crash monitoring and things like that. The company that's actually building the, the original app will have access to that type of stuff. But for bug reports, um, typically, for the companies I've worked with, you know, they're, they're calling the the end use the end owner of the of the app they're calling the realtor the the bank and those get relayed which is not a very good solution but that's how it goes sometimes i definitely think you could uh, 
make a more involved process where um, you could have a centralized bug database where you report things and get them fixed. That would, that would make sense. I think there are two different levels of support for these kinds of apps. First, you have the, the customer, which is the business that's buying your app, your solution. So you have to support those. And if they are having problems with the app, they're obviously your main responsibility. And they, in, in turn, have their customers that have to be given support. So you, you have these two levels and you have to support the businesses and they have to support their customers. Yep, definitely. And yeah, something that if you're doing this, you have to figure it out or deal with uh, deal with the parts that aren't working that well. Um, it also seems to me that you have to deal with the notion that you have to have a single corporate entity interacting with Apple, which means that you might have to set up a separate, I don't know, some sort of limited corporation that sort of merges the white label provider and the company so that you can do things like pull certificates and so forth. Well, there's a couple approaches people use for this. So if you're, if you're a company, you're selling to like small realtors, you'll probably just manage all that yourself. You'll, you'll do the certificates, provision profiles, you'll host it under your own, your app ID. So if you look in the app store, you've got, 50 different apps that are very similar. And this works. A lot of companies just do this. Um, if you're going to manage that, that's the easiest way to do it. If you sell to bigger organizations that might have their own Apple ID and want to you know, keep it under, under their roof uh, with their own Apple account, um, then you have to do different things. Then you need to get access. And then you need to do things like Getting, getting your own certificate on their Apple ID, getting provisioning profile, um, creating the app ID, going through iTunes Connect and doing the same thing. And this is this type of thing is a lot of the headaches that I'm trying to solve with my, my, my new company that I'm starting up. Um, because a lot of companies just get mired down in this, this muck of just dealing with iTunes Connect and the App Store and all that stuff. And we need to do it for 30 or 50 different apps it gets really hard to, you know, create new features and release release new versions of the app because you have to update, you know, a bunch of different apps that are already out there. So not only is, that, but let's say you have fifty customers, fifty realtors. Each one of them just distribute. Even if a realtor tends to be a very local thing, they're likely to distribute worldwide because people can move in from anywhere. Now, imagine reviews coming from all those countries across all those apps. How can you respond to those one stars and two star reviews when they're just so scattered? Who takes responsibility for that? Where is the cutoff between service and, you know, and development. That's a good question. Yeah, that's, that's going to be up to the, the company and, and their customers. Um, it certainly has to be part of the contracting process. Just like who owns the intellectual property, who owns the assets that they're used to customize, what are the limits of how you can use those assets? And it's going to be really important that when you're setting up your company, that you be able to use assets from customers to promote the the white label brand. Yeah, that's uh, that's where it gets tricky because some you know your customer may not want to using their their icon to promote your own thing, and the companies I've worked with they'll usually have a generic version of the app that they do for all their, their demos. Um, that way they don't get into it. And you can also get, get permission, you know, as far as your, as far as the contract that, you know, we want to use you to promote uh, this, what we're doing, uh, screenshots and stuff like that. So it can be done both ways. 
So let me ask you, do you first find the customers and then build the infrastructure? Or do you build the infrastructure and then say, okay, that's my sunk cost. Now I'm going to start to monetize it. I don't know. That's the, that's the million dollar question. And I leave that up to the, to the entrepreneurs who are investing in this and hopefully know their, their problem space enough where they know if, if they're going to build something, they have got to, they have good validation that what they're going to build is going to be something people want to have as their own app. You have to take into account uh, for the entrepreneurs out there, you have to take into account that with white label apps, you, we are talking about a business to business solution usually. So you're not selling to individuals. You might be, but that not, that's not very common. You're selling to business businesses and selling to businesses is a whole nother ballgame. Uh, true. Yeah. Most of these companies are doing B2B. So you build a company, you build an app and you sell to another business. I uh, always have this image of, you know, the suits, the high heels and the rolly carts. The suits, the high heels and the rolly carts. Yeah. The business to business thing where you have to go in and pitch and, you know, try to sell the business on why and, they need your services and bags full of money oh yeah bags full of money plus investors would help a lot <laughs> got an angel you might um, but with this episode i want to talk more about the the technical challenges of building these apps so some of our listeners have undoubtedly done this stuff and if you're in a company that has an app and all of a sudden they want to white label it um there's no real playbook on what you can do to get your app out there to 50 different customers. Uh, typically what happens with most companies, you've got a developer working on the app. Maybe you've got your sprint going. You know, your, your team lead goes, Hey, we signed a new customer. Let's, let's make the app. Let's rebrand it so they can, looks like they're own. We're going to white label it. And the developer goes, shrugs their shoulders. Like, I don't know how to do this. And they'll go, they'll do something like create an if def for a different text. <laughs> if yeah, text, this is where Swift gets really good. Yep. But even because if it's, you can do, I mean, just from a programmatic point of view, it's wonderful that you can separate the semantics of the presentation so easily, you know, from the implementation details. I think a lot of modern languages, you know, I, I say Swift simply because that's kind of where my brain is at. True. But even if you take away the if def, developers will find a way. They'll just do an if else. If use this icon, otherwise use this icon. And, and you have to deal with the number one reality of, you know, cross platform development which is if you're dealing with uh you know joe realtor joe realtor doesn't want to limit his customer base to iphones they never want to limit their their customer base so long as you have any service application that service application is going to want to run on multiple platforms True. That's the that's the choice that you know every company that makes apps has to do. Are you doing native iPhone, native Android, using one of the cross platform tools? But the approach that I talked about with doing an if def, that's gonna break down really quick. If you've got yep. 10, 10, 10 different customers and you've got it all in code, um, if this customer, if that else, if this customer, uh, for all the different things you have to brand, your icons, your text, your colors, that's gonna be a problem. But this is where a lot of people start, and then they... But that's when they start building frameworks and libraries that are independent of each app. We hope so. You can start by extracting these things. Um, I think the next step people take, will they'll say, hey, let's just not make any code changes. Let's put this... Let's put the... 
the icon files in a different target. Okay, so that because Apple provides a lot of frameworks for doing things like that, so they'll when they fire up a new a customer, they'll create a new target. Mm-hmm. This seems okay. So you can you get your images in there, and when you build the this app, you get image A. When you have app B, you've got image B, and you know throw a plist in there, and then you can customize some of the text. And this works for a little while, um, but you get to the point where you have 20, 30, uh, 50 apps, all of a sudden your project file is massive and you just can't work with it anymore because you just Plus, up. should you be in Xcode at all when you're building this? Probably not, uh, but this is where you start because people don't really have a playbook for how to build apps for 50 different customers and i agree with you um i mean at this point most people will have already started you know pulling up javascript and you know all those related tools yeah One they're, they're not I, going to be in the apple ecosystem even if they're going to distribute to the apple ecosystem at this point yeah one approach that i, that I can think of which i've actually done sort of is you could create your own tool to customize the apps. So the apps would have some sort of uh, internal database of uh, configurations, and that can be anything. And you'd have, like, let's say, uh, a little Mac app that you've built to customize your apps. So they're all the same app, but this one configuration file or database or wherever is different between between them. And I've actually done something like that and it works, but of course it depends on how much stuff you have to customize. I think a lot of people will develop meta-languages where the meta-language describes how the app is customized and then you use tools to process the meta-language profiles into more traditional code, which is then, you know, you automate the compilation, the testing, and so forth. Yeah, that's a good point. And I think developers, when they start to think about this, run into the problems with the, the first two things they tried. They'll find ways to build an internal tool that will read from a config file and, you know, modify the app as needed. And that's where you get to, I think most of the companies that have a mature platform have basically got to the point where they can just drop in a config file and build. You know, they'll have a plist or a JSON file that describes, you know, where to get the images are, what the texts are, if you have any features that are turned on or off are described from there. So you want to get to the point pretty quickly where you can just build, you can drop in a you know, some kind of configure file. But what you're describing is basically an interface file. It may be slightly more sophisticated than, you know, a zib or something, but it's pretty static. And I think that in reality, you need something just a step further, which is why I talk about a custom you know, design tool, design language, because control flow isn't necessarily going to be identical across a whole suite of related apps. Um, true. So, in the but what I found for for most cases, companies can build off a config file because they've they've narrowed down what what problems they're going to solve. It's pretty narrow. If you get beyond that, where you start doing um, customized uh, features for different clients, um, you could de- I could definitely see a case where you can get more uh, more abstract, building a meta-language like you described. Um, I, d- I don't see a lot of companies doing that, even ones that have invested you know a lot of money in their, in their process. They all, they- but at the same time, you have the description of each app, the tools that go into that app. You want to have some sort of version control system. 
you need to have your testing system, it can become quite a big endeavor. And I don't know of any commercial tools that are not custom built that can do all that for that many targets. Um, this is true. No, um, the companies that have invested heavily in their infrastructure, building the apps, writing tests, it's all been done in-house, you know, and most of them have spent six figures. Uh, this is the the realization with the company I'm trying to start is to help companies do this, to build a set of tools around this so companies don't have to spend six figures to to figure this out. Um, so that's what I'm... So you would be doing white box, white boxing? Not so much. I just, uh, I'm looking to create a set of tools, yeah, either as a, as a consultant or just finding out what the the problems are people are, are facing. You know, um, I've built these type of systems for clients yeah, using like Fastlane. They want to be able to build from a Kindle file. Okay. They need to be able to uh, get their certificates for a new, for their customer provision profile set up without clicking through all the different uh, web pages you have to go through, iTunes Connect, the, the Apple developer account. So this saves the company's time uh, because typically what you have is you've got the company's senior developer doing all the stuff, setting it up because he knows how to operate the Apple ecosystem. And that's a waste of time to have them spend half hour, 45 minutes setting this up when you know you can run the script because we do have tools that do this. So um, mm -hmm. what I'm trying to do, I'm trying to just build a suite of tools that companies can either subscribe to as a service or buy outright that um, lets them do this faster. So that's what got me interested in, in, in doing this. That's a really neat idea. It is. So uh, I've done it a couple times as a, as a consultant, just doing it off ad hoc stuff. But I'm like, you know, this is a repeatable problem. It's an expensive problem. And there's a repeatable solution. So I'm trying to build uh, solutions around this for, for companies that are having these problems. Uh, because every company has their own way of doing it. And I think they all end up in a similar place. You know, they've got the config files and there's different ways they can, they can build the, they can build the product. Um, some of them might, you know, do a Git checkout, copy the files over with the script, uh, drop in the config file, build it, and check it back into Git. Other companies just have a, have their source code sitting in a directory and they have a script, bring it down and they'll just copy the other assets in uh, the config file and the images and all that and, and do it from there. Um, they don't really uh, keep track of it, but you know, it's on the file, it's on a file system and that can be backed up. So if they need to get back to what version of app that was, they could do it, but there's a lot of ways to do it. And, but when you look at the mature systems, they have a lot in common. So I, I think I can do this pretty efficiently and help companies save money. So if you're in a company, do you think that you could become the test flight for white label? Possibly. Yeah, definitely. Um, build tools around it. And, you know, maybe I wouldn't even be all scripted. Maybe just hire people that know how to do all this stuff and um, just manage it. Because a lot of companies, they may not have a full-time development team. They might just um, have people they bring in here and there. They don't want to that they don't, they don't want to deal with it. And most companies don't want their senior developers doing mundane stuff, clicking around on websites. So I, I would love to be the test flight of uh, white-labeled apps. So that's what I'm trying to do. So listeners, if you, your company or company you know of is facing these problems, uh, you should talk to me. I'm Right now, I'm, I'm trying to validate my idea. And by validate, I want to make sure that there are enough people with the same problem that they would be willing to pay for that I could build a system around first. Um, so my first step is just talking to people, saying, hey, what are your problems? If you had a, a magic genie that could do one thing for you, what would it be? Uh, that type of stuff. So I've been trying to get the word out and just talk to companies that are dealing with this, dealing with these white label problems and saying, hey, uh, how can I help? What's your elevator pitch? I don't have a pitch 
as of yet. Um, right now, I'm just trying to validate. Um, I've got an idea. I've done it a couple times as a consultant, but I'm like, I think it's a viable business, but I'm not out there selling it yet because there's really nothing out there. Um, Cause I don't have anything to sell other than my you know consulting expertise, which I could do. But right now I'm just trying to find companies that have these problems and talk with them. Um, see if I can find enough common issues that I can build something around that. Are you seeing burnout in corporate America in terms of apps? What do you mean by burnout? For a while, everybody had their own app and a lot of the biggest companies, they have their apps. Their apps are well-grounded. They're there. Where is the, the area that people can expand into? That's tough. Yeah, and I, I definitely say there is or there has been a, a big pushback in, in apps because I, I have no idea how many apps are on my phone right now. There's too many. I don't know where most of my apps are. If I wanted to get to, I think saturation is a better word than burnout. Okay, yeah, saturation. But you know, ten years ago, we really didn't have phones with apps, or very few people did. Mm-hmm. So people were just experimenting, and we need an app. Okay, they've got an app. I want an app too, and without really understanding why people would want your app. Um, so I think we've gotten to a point where a lot of companies built apps that no one cared about, no one downloaded them. And if they downloaded them, they didn't use them more than once. So I think there's a, a, a lot of pushback where, you know, people can make smarter decisions, whether, you know, they really need an app does this company, I'm trying to give an example here of a company that just doesn't need an app. And there's probably a lot of any, any restaurant. And I can guarantee you that their website is terrible. And that they don't need an app. Probably not. But there are people that will buy, build an app for them. And, uh, Everybody will build an app for them. It's money. That's true. Yeah, a restaurant. A uh, little coffee shop, like, <laughs> uh, besides Starbucks, of course. I don't know. Maybe even Starbucks doesn't need an app. Starbucks app does do things for you. It lets you manage your card it provides some value. So I'm going to give Starbucks a kind of pass, but you said the little, the little restaurant, the corner restaurant, do they need an app? Probably not. Think about how many businesses you interact with on a daily basis that you're not going to be installing an app for, from every one of them. You don't have enough space on your phone for that. That's true. I mean, I'm not going to download an app for every business in there, but if I was running a business and I had loyal customers and if I can get them to order easily with, with their app versus calling in, maybe I do that for pizza delivery. You know, that might, that might work in some cases, but I think. Yeah, but then, then you would probably be making an app for more than just one pizza place. Like, I believe you have that in the USA as well. We have here like two or three delivery apps that many businesses sign up for. So the app is, doesn't belong to the business that's selling you the pizza, but you go there and there are lots of pizza places and you choose one and they deliver your pizza. That's true. In the US, we have Bite Squad, at least the one that's most active in my area in but for that thing, you have to scroll through a bunch of things. And if I'm a small pizza place and I've got loyal customers, I want to make it easier for them to order so they don't do something else. Maybe an app works out. And there are companies that build apps for restaurants. Um, I don't know. I, I, don't, I really don't know the, the value proposition. But I think. Do you remember just a couple of years ago, Apple really pushing back, saying, we don't want apps that can be done as websites. I don't remember them specifically pushing back, but that's a good point. I think, you know, if you can, if you just want to go to someplace every week or so, or once a month or less than that, you know, go to a website. You don't need an app for that. 
Um, you know, the apps that are valuable are the ones that I'm on every day. You know, I do my things, I can check info. Um, that's where I really get the most value out of different apps. I can check something quick and get on with my day. I think if you don't do that, if you, if what you, if what your app does could be accomplished just as well by a, a website, you know, don't build an app. Uh, definitely. And I think a lot of companies have pushed back and they realized there's not a lot of value, a lot of that behind what a, a lot of the apps that have been created. So what are the key components that a white label app can offer that a website cannot? Well, I think it's the same type of thing that any app can offer. Um, websites are not going to do push notifications. So if you need to get a hold of people and notify them of something important that they care about, uh, you need to get them to order an app. You know, the user experience is going to be better. If you have to swipe through things, look through things and filter, I mean, an app's always going to be better for that. And, but you know, there's a lot of benefits uh, for stuff that you don't use very often. You know, make it a web app. Uh, you're fine. It works on every platform and you don't have to worry about it. Yeah, I think anytime you can take advantage of the platform, like specific hardware features like 3D Touch and maybe even Touch ID, you can't use that on the web yet. I don't think so. So I think anytime you can get an, an advantage from the platform itself, some specific feature like I know the Starbucks app has a really cool iMessage extension. I, I think those are the kinds of apps that really need to be apps and not web apps. Yeah, for sure. I think the the Touch ID, you know, is great for apps that need some level of security, like a banking app, a Mint, whatever. If you want to make sure that the person using it is not their person or their their children, because the children all know their parents' passcodes. Um, <laughs> Eighteen months, they know how to unlock their uh, the phone. I can't tell phone. you how many times I'm doing something and my child just grabs my hand and puts it on a phone. <laughs> That's awesome. Okay. So it's not just the person, person or you know their kid. You know. <laughs> so if you're okay with your kid using your banking app, then you're golden. This is one of the reasons I don't have a banking app. You go to the bank like an animal? I do go to the bank like an animal, but I also just use the website. <laughs> so we've talked about white box solutions. We've talked about the technology that supports it. We've talked about infrastructure that has to be developed to create and provide for a, a system that can have multiple customers. We've talked about the difficulties in finding those customers and finding the right kind of app. What else have we missed? Yeah, I'm not sure. I, I might get to my pick a little bit early, but a lot of the tools that I've been using around this are uh, Fastlane, Fastlane tools that help uh, getting your certificates and provisioning profiles. So that's been a a great help. So if, if you get into this, they have companies, you know, there are tool sets that exist that can help you with this stuff. You know, the Fastlane, the produce can create an app ID for a brand new app. You can also set up your push notification that way. Uh, they've got CERT, which will create a, a certificate if you need that. Uh, Psy will set up your provisioning profiles. So, yeah, I think a lot, of, a lot of what you get into when you're building the systems are just you're creating a script and just letting it run. But um, yeah, there are a lot of tools that can help you out with this. So that's most of what I had. Anything else that we should cover? I think we're good. What do you think? That sounds like consensus. So, okay. And yeah, just a reminder, if your company... If you're a developer at a company that is building white-labeled apps, I would love to talk to you or your boss and see what the problems that you're facing are. And if you have any questions, I've been through this a, a few times. So you can reach out to me, james at Sharp5 Software. Go to iFreak's page. You can find me pretty easy. Or at James Uber, which is J-A-I-M. Most people still think I'm James Uber. 
Oh, which I'm yeah, okay they with. named that car company after you. They totally did. But that's how it goes. But yeah, reach out to me. I'd love to hear what you're working on. Maybe I can help. So let's get to the picks. Erica, what do you have? Okay. As usual, I'm not going with anything useful. I'm going with a movie, and it's Guardians of the Galaxy 2. The world is depressing and a downer and a bummer. This is an uplifting, fun, little, silly summer movie that will put a smile on your face. With the past six months, we all need a smile. So, And it's got good music. Good tunes. Who's on the soundtrack? Just about everybody from the 70s and 80s. Okay. Electric Light Orchestra. Um, gosh. Uh, who did Brandy? I can't even remember who did Brandy. Uh, Jay and the Americans. Wow. I, I, I didn't know there would be a quiz. Okay. Just You said the music was great. Like, how great is it? It's it's really good. It's uh, George Harrison is on it. Um, which which is the one that has the the witchy woman? Witchy uh, the eagles? No, <laughs> no. Oh gosh, I'm just going blank on the name, and I can picture the singer, and she went off and had a great solo career. The chain Fleetwood Mac. That's it. Oh, Stevie Nicks is the witchy woman, not yes. the song witchy woman. Okay. You see, but I had an indirect reference into the, the main you know, data, so we had to go through those, those link lists okay. together. Steve, for all I know, Stevie, Stevie Nicks is a fantastic human being, so I shouldn't call her a witchy woman. But, uh, all right, Guy, do you have a pick for us? I'm going to follow Erica's. I'm going to suggest a really good series. It's called Stranger Things. Oh, and that it's was on Netflix. Good. Yeah, if you're not, if, if you've been living under a rock and you haven't watched it yet, I think it's, uh, you can watch it in one weekend, I think. It's not very long. And the first season is really good. And it's got so much wonderful texture to it. Yeah, it's nostalgic. It's have, it has good music. It's really good. Very cool. Stranger Things on Netflix. All right. Come on, do something cultural. Do something cultural. Oh, do cultural. Let me see here. Um, I don't. I don't have anything cultural. Okay, I got some cultural. All right. So you can always go with fry sauce. Fry sauce. What's fry sauce? Oh my god, and you're from Salt Lake City? No, I'm from Minneapolis. Oh. <laughs> Why did I think you were from Salt Lake City? And Andrew's Salt Lake City. Well, you're the same person, more or less. Same, <laughs> Andrew. Yeah, it's, just, it's kind of like a Fight Club thing, you know? Who's Fry who? sauce is a mix of mayo and ketchup, basically. It's a thing. It's, it's just kind of a Midwestern thing. I, I believe it. You can mix mayo with anything, and it'll be good. <laughs> Okay, what, what's your cultural pick? All right, cultural pick. So there are very few albums that get released anymore that I listen to over and over and over again. Like when I was a kid, teenager, you know, maybe college, I listened to albums a lot. Mm -hmm. Every five years, an album does this where I just listen to it over and over again. And I'm going to pick one. It's by the Turnpike Troubadours. I don't think I picked this before. They're uh, Red Dirt, which means they're from Oklahoma, a little bit country, a little rock and roll. In Texas, they call it Texas music. In Oklahoma, they call it Red Dirt, but they just call it music down there. It's just it's a mix of all that. Uh, so it's a little bit um, kind of a country. If you're from up north, you'd call it alt country, but they're not alt country at all. But their last album that came out is fantastic. Great songs. I had to look up the name of it. Um, the Turnpike Troubadours, Goodbye Normal Street, Diamonds and Gasoline, Bossier City. Bo Bozier. Any of those? Bozier City. Um, oh, Bozier. Bozier. Uh, if you listen to the album, you'll hear them say Bozier City. The last album they have is called The Turnpike Troubadours. Um, fantastic. Um, great songs front to back. I listened to this over and over again. It's kind of the album. After you listen to it a few times, like all the songs are very solid. So if you like good country songs. Um, uh, very Name solid. some good country. 
So good country, you like? Yeah, some good country. So if you like whatever, then you'll like the Turnpike Troubadours. Okay. So at, at least up north, everyone's into like the alt country stuff, like Sunvolt, which is pretty. They're pretty old, but if you like a little bit of rock and country, and you like good songs that don't make you wanna, I don't know. If I if I listen to modern country radio, I just can't handle it, and I. I just can't listen to it. Um, these guys have great songs. So in the tradition of the great songwriters, you know, like a Willie Nelson, Waylon Jennings, Johnny Cash, uh, that type of thing. So it's just good music. So and your wife left you, your dog died? No, no, no. Not that trite stuff, but uh, just uh, real, real life situations. Um, you know, he's talking about going hunting with a good friend, but, you know, uh, but I, I recommend it. So if you like, if you like good songs, uh, check out the Turnpike Troubadours. Talk I already have it open in iTunes. Okay. So that's my pick. I, I was going to pick the Fastlane tools because they're really pretty amazing for doing the white living stuff that we talked about, but I already explained that stuff. So. I'm not familiar with their music. Fast. There was a band called Fastlane. No, I'm kidding. In the, in the 90s, I think. No, Does it's a good it sound name for like a band? band? It could be a band. Yeah. That was fast. I'm thinking of Fastball. I don't know. Yeah, Fastball was the one that did that. It's it's on my exercise playlist. There we go. There was a band that did a song called Fastlane. I can't remember. They don't do Deeper Shade of Soul. What's the name of that band? <laughs> They're like a Norwegian rap band or something. I, I don't know. From the 90s. All right. Google will help you out. So that's all the time we have on our show. Thanks for sticking around for my musical ramblings. Urban Dance Squad did a song called Fast Lane off their, I don't know, whatever album. The same album that had a deeper shade of soul. Uh, we'll see you all next week. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more.